Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 8, Into Exile. If you're a first-time listener, you really owe it to yourself to start at the beginning. You can find Episode 1 of Season 1 easily at 15minutesontheway.com. Otherwise, if you're already on the way with us, welcome back. I've missed you, friend. Here is today's story. As Season 7 ended, King Josiah is making a name for himself by reforming the nation and their walk with me. It is in Josiah's thirteenth year as king that another prophet of whom you've heard begins his ministry and with whom we begin Season 8, Jeremiah. His name means Yahweh exalts. I like the guy already, obviously unrelated to genus Lithobates. Jeremiah's book is second only to Isaiah's in terms of the prophets, whether you're talking substance, order, or length. Jeremiah has 52 chapters to Isaiah's 66. His book falls right after Isaiah's in every version of the owner's manual. And if you're reading in the Tanakh, Kings and Chronicles are obviously longer even than Isaiah because they haven't been split in two. Like Isaiah, Jeremiah begins with his specific experience of our call, and a more direct one at that. I do not wonder aloud whom shall I send, as with Isaiah, but rather tell Jeremiah outright that I've appointed him a prophet since before he was born. And as Isaiah's lips were touched with the purifying coal to ready his lips for mission, I put out my hand and directly touched Jeremiah's mouth myself, sanctifying it and him to proclaim my words. That's Jeremiah 1.1. In my charge to Jeremiah, in verse 14, I set his theme. He will prophesy invasion from the north as judgment because of their wickedness in forsaking me, in burning incense to other gods, and in worshipping what their hands have made. Jeremiah 2.2 2. Jeremiah 2 weaves a tapestry of extremely pointed metaphors to enliven the people's thinking in the hopes of capturing their attention and reaching their hearts. The people are my bride who was devoted to me in her youth, but then betrayed me and lay down like a prostitute seeking a succession of lovers to lay with, lifting her skirts to them on every high hill and under every spreading tree. Jeremiah 2.20, 33-34, 3.1-10, 13, 24-27. The NRSV is even more pointed, declaring that Jacob's descendants have played the whore in these passages. Mixing metaphors better than a Hamilton beach, Jeremiah also characterizes the people with our recurrent analogy of adolescent children who refuse to listen and continue their course without understanding their own stupidity. 220 on the other hand, in positive metaphor, for Jeremiah, and for everybody else for that matter, I am the true source of life, a fountain of living water from which my people have turned away. 2.13.17.13 
They have instead dug their own pathetic cisterns in which to gather their own water. To complete the irony of the cistern image, Jeremiah will be imprisoned later in his career in a cistern in which there is no water, only mud, into which the people's feet sink. A metaphor unto its own, with more to come. That's 38.6. They have left the great gush and bounty of me in order to collect mere trickles from alternate sources again sounding the theme of self-reliance instead of Yahweh-reliance, again living out a mere fraction of the potential latent in bearing my image. As such, I am a potter who is making a vessel of clay that spoils in my hands, and so I rework it into another vessel. Jeremiah 8.1 we could spend several episodes on this metaphor alone, on Israel's role as a vessel for my rescue of humanity, of the nature of the clay's yielding to the potter's hands, on the dynamic process of creation, the shifting of destinies according to the clay's response to my hands, and so on. Jeremiah and I unpacked the last one, the shifting of destinies part, to help them see their need to repent and turn from their current course. This image of a potter reworking a clay vessel may have an artsy, homespun feel to it, but it is a metaphor for coming painful judgment unless the people yield to my hands. That judgment is coming in the form of great destruction at the hands of an enemy from the north, who will lay siege to Jerusalem until it breaks. They will destroy the temple, lay waste to the land, and carry all that remains of the kingdom of Judah into exile. A sobering message indeed. Jeremiah 4, 7, and 13. The calls of Jeremiah to yield, to soften like clay that can be worked with by a master potter, are some of the best in all the owner's manual. Here, of course, are the licks I'd like you to get out your own manual to see for yourself. For these are the words of Jeremiah that speak to you as well as ancient Judah. Start with Jeremiah 6, 16. If there is a single verse in Tom that defines our goal for these instant efforts with you and refines them to a single sentence, it is this verse. Though it is embedded in the fuller context of Israel's repeated refusal to listen or change their trajectory, the call stands, then and now, as does Jeremiah's summary of the priorities that will set Israel and you back on the way and keep you there in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. They're only a couple pages apart, so please read them both. Feel free to break out the highlighter for them, too. That's Jeremiah 6.16 and 9.23-24. I'll wait. Then, as now, though, there are prophets speaking in my name, telling the people they're doing great, that everything's fine, that instead of the destruction Jeremiah's prophesying, they're going to be swimming in health and wealth. Their inherited arthritis is going to disappear, 
and they're going to come into an 18-carat gold Rolex to boot. Okay, that's a little anachronistic, but there are definitely people in Jeremiah's time and yours that are misrepresenting me and my message. While Jeremiah is weeping at the coming fate of his people because of the hardness of their hearts, other sycophantic prophets are speaking false endorsement of the greedy, unjust status quo with the priests following suit. Not surprisingly, this dynamic has fostered the pattern of religious action devoid of relational integrity, of ritual deeds without any concurrent dedication or compassion, a state we sum up as being circumcised only in foreskin and not in heart. Jeremiah 4.4 and 9.25-26, in context with our previous prioritizing site from verse 23. Yet even as Jeremiah condemns the people for offering animal sacrifices without similarly offering their hearts to me, shown not only in their also making similar sacrifices to the smorgas gods, but in their greedy mistreatment of their fellows, Jeremiah, like Isaiah, casts a line into the future to a time on the other side of coming judgment, when, in fact, neither the ark nor, therefore, the sacrifices pointed at it will be needed any longer. Jeremiah 3, 12-18 Don't miss that. A remnant sampling of the people, one from a city and two from a family, will return to a new Jerusalem after exile and all nations will be drawn to my presence there. Jeremiah doesn't say much more than that, but those words are loaded with power if you've been paying attention. They represent a sea change in our relationship with our people. In those coming days, the ark won't even enter their minds or be remembered. It will not be missed, nor will another be made. Jeremiah 3.16 Somehow, the entire sacrificial system that ultimately focuses on me through the Ark of our Covenant with our people will be obsolete. At that same time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of Yahweh, and all nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of Yahweh. No longer will they follow the stubbornness of their evil hearts. Surely you noticed the Abraplan trigger phrase in there, the all nations will gather bit, right? And so even as he weeps at the rolling, blistering consequences in 11.8 required by our covenant with the people in Leviticus 26.14 and Joshua 23.15, Jeremiah lights a beacon of eventual hope that all the pending suffering will not be in vain. We will not make a full end to our people. Jeremiah 5.18 Some will be spared, and after surviving exile, a remnant restored to Jerusalem will step into the next remarkable phase of the Abra plan in which how we operate with humanity makes a dramatic shift. This joins with Zephaniah's site in Zephaniah 3.11-20, where instead of my ark, I am in the people's midst, along with the several lines cast ahead by Isaiah and others. I will no longer require an intermediary device such as the ark, glorious and significant as it is. I mean, this is world-rocking stuff. 
universe rocking even. And so, obviously, this is a pivotal time in the Abra plan, which ripples out into all the surrounding area. Contemporaneous with Jeremiah, the prophet Nahum lights up with our final message for Assyria. We have already mentioned several times now how Assyria has overstepped its bounds in its prideful avarice and cruelty. And now Nahum levels our judgment on Nineveh. Nahum means consolation, consoler, or comfort. Like it's a comfort when the bully who's been beating you up every day after school finally gets expelled. But this is on a slightly larger scale. And Nineveh is Assyria's final capital, shifted there by Sennacherib upon his return home from 2 Kings 18 and 19. You could think of Nahum's brief three-chapter book as a counterpart to Jonah's four-chapter drama found just a few pages earlier, with Micah in the middle. Micah's as close as we get to Malcolm in Tom. We process Jonah just a tiny bit already, We won't say much more here, other than to note again our special treatment of this people far outside our covenantal responsibilities. We are not bound essentially by contract to anyone but Israel, but our concern is not solely for them. By now, we hope it is crystal clear that the all-nations clause of the Abra plan is what is driving it all. Or rather, that our compassionate desire for the rescue of all nations is driving it all. And so, Gentile Assyria rates not just one, but two prophets, commissioned solely for them. Only one other prophet will get a similar off-covenant assignment, Obadiah, whose name means servant of Yahweh. He delivers his one-chapter missive against Edom for either their rebellion against Judah in 2 Kings 8, or more likely for later helping Babylon by turning captured Judeans over to them in Psalm 137.7. You may recall that Jonah reluctantly brought good news. Nahum brings the bad. Nahum uses the image of a lion for Assyria, a lion who has not only killed enough for his family to live on, but has instead filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh, in literal overkill, far exceeding actual need in gluttonous arrogance and needless slaughter. Assyria will thus soon suffer the same devastation, desolation, and destruction it handed out to others. The people of Judah will well remember how Sennacherib's envoy talked such trash about us beside Jerusalem's walls when they hear Nahum proclaim to Nineveh, The voice of your messengers shall be heard no more. That's Nahum 2 verse 10. At this point in our survey, it's been six years since we checked in on Josiah, and we will turn and examine his 18th year of his reign next time. Until then, keep walking together with us on the way. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to support us, spread the word. Give us a review on iTunes or Facebook. Then share a link to episode one with your friends. We hope our time together today has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. 
So keep walking on the way. Be good to yourself.